Welcome to the Global Research News Hour in the summer. My name is Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. The show is produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. It is appropriate to acknowledge the realities of this and other gifts and assets and resources accessed from the original indigenous peoples and then taken in large part without consent or through broken promises and the need to restore justice through respectful payment of reparations and resetting a new course into the future. On today's show, we feature a speech given by lawyer, journalist, and activist Dimitri Lascaris on the lessons he learned during his one-month tour of Russia about the people there and particularly their feelings about the current conflict in Ukraine that has already claimed the lives of thousands of soldiers on both sides. He went on this voyage without a welcoming committee in Russia with his proceeds being paid by no one. For Lascaris, his speeches were intended as acts of peace spreading the word across the land, correcting misinformation and propaganda on the mainstream airwaves, and hopefully turning the tide of support for the war. Despite the concerns he raised, Dmitry Lascaris was not only faced with opposition, but people essentially used tactics, threatening and even intimidating people, and thereby successfully had the people owning or controlling the speaking venues cancel their spot. In the city of Winnipeg, two separate venues were cancelled before organizers got a speaking site at the Four Crown Hotel on McPhillips Street. The talk was recorded by CKUW and we play an abridged version for listeners who missed the talk. Dimitri Lascaris has been practicing law for over 30 years. Dimitri was named by Canadian Lawyer Magazine as one of the 25 most influential lawyers in Canada. He ran for the leadership of the Green Party and placed in second place, receiving 4.5% of the vote on the final ballot. So here is Dimitri Lascaris speaking on June 22, 2023 on the topic, Making Peace with Russia One Handshake at a Time. Generally, what has been said about my position is that I want Russia to win. (laughs) Bollocks. I don't want anybody to win. I do not think of this war in these terms. I want this war to end as quickly as possible. If we go to the point where one side has total victory and another side has total defeat, at a bare minimum, for reasons I'll explain, Ukraine will be wrecked. And in the worst case scenario, we will be in a nuclear holocaust. What is in the interest of the Ukrainian people, and I cannot stress that enough, the Ukrainian people and all people is that we bring this war to an end immediately with great haste, as much as we can muster, and not that we wait until one side has been decisively defeated. Now, 
Therefore, how should we respond in my submission? First of all, robust humanitarian aid to the innocent victims of this war, whether they be in areas controlled by Ukraine or areas controlled by Russia. There are innocent victims on both sides. And I suggest that we should not do that through the Ukrainian government because there are strong indications that it is hopelessly corrupt, but rather that we use independent international organizations, non-governmental organizations, to deliver the aid directly to the Ukrainian people. Secondly, we should provide sanctuary, robust sanctuary and protection to Ukrainian refugees. There are millions of them. And in that regard, we get a passing grade. However, it's fair to say that we should not be prioritizing the interests of any refugees over any other refugees. The lives of Palestinian refugees, for example, are worth every bit as much as the lives of Ukrainian refugees. All of them deserve our protection and our, uh, our sustenance. Thirdly, we should impose an arms embargo on both sides. We should not be providing weapons to anybody in this conflict. Fourthly, we should not be providing or imposing economic sanctions that have not been approved by the United Nations Security Council. Those are a violation of international law. And the selective imposition of economic sanctions at the end of the day constitutes nothing but naked imperialism. This has to be done through international consensus, and we have failed to do that. Fifthly, we should have a legal prohibition on any of our citizens participating as combatants in this war for either side. And finally, we should support to the maximum possible extent negotiations. And if we were to fulfill the first five criteria that I've laid out, we would be in a position credibly to offer ourselves even as mediators. But because we are in this war up to our necks on one side, we have zero credibility as mediators. We cannot possibly play the role of a neutral arbiter of this conflict and, and, and bring about a peaceful resolution given the stance that our government has adopted. Now, people will say this is an outlier position. Jesus, Lascaris, you're not supporting the transfer of weapons to Ukraine. You're not supposing the imposition of, or supporting the imposition of, of, of devastating economic sanctions on Russia. Well, I'm here to tell you, my friends, that this is not an outlier position not on a global scale, almost nobody in Latin America has provided any form of military aid to Ukraine. Almost nobody in Africa has done that. Almost nobody in the Middle East, almost nobody in Asia has done that. It's the West that has done that, and the West constitutes a small minority of states representing a small proportion of the human population. 48 countries have provided military aid to Ukraine, 146 countries have not. Now, not only is my position not an outlier in the world at large, it's not even an outlier in Canada. In February of this year, the National Post, to its great surprise and chagrin, found, after commissioning a poll, that only 32% of Canadians supported sending more weapons to Ukraine. A large majority of Canadians did not express support for continuing to do that. What about sanctions? This map will show you, again, the countries in gray have not imposed economic sanctions on Russia. Almost nobody in Latin America has done that. Almost nobody in Africa, almost nobody in Asia has imposed economic sanctions on Russia. Again, it's the West purporting to represent the international community when in fact the West constitutes a minority of states and a minority of the human population. So those who are supportive of the Canadian government and NATO position on this war, they are the outliers. They are the minority. They do not speak for the global population. Now, in terms of assessing my position, I ask you to think critically. 
Uh, the majority of Western mainstream media reports about the war, if you look carefully at them, are ultimately based upon claims made by the US, British, or Ukrainian governments. And I want to say a word about these three sources as, uh, in terms of their credibility. So let's talk about the US and uh, Britain. Uh, would anyone believe at face value the claims of the US or Britain when it comes to war? Didn't the Pentagon Papers show us that four successive presidential administrations in the United States had lied relentlessly about war? And Daniel Ellsberg, who heroically presented those papers to us and passed away recently, he said before he passed away that the US provoked this war in Ukraine. Didn't we, do, do we not know to a certainty today that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, a war which caused the deaths of hundreds, hundreds of thousands of innocent Iraqis? Do we not know to a certainty that Saddam Hussein was not involved in 9-11, despite claims to the contrary? Don't the Afghanistan papers, which were revealed only within the last few years, demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that we were lied to for 20 years about the Afghan war? Why would anyone believe a damn word that the US government has to say about any war anywhere in the world. And the same goes for the British government. Now I want to talk about the Ukrainian government as a source of information. There, there's even further considerations to bear in mind in terms of its credibility. Earlier, a few weeks ago, Joseph Burrell, who's the equivalent of the foreign minister of the European Union, said in a public interview that if we don't support Ukraine, Ukraine will fall in a matter of days. And some two days later, the German defense minister, Boris Pistorius, went even further and said that if we stop supporting Ukraine, it will disappear tomorrow. So as a lawyer, I ask myself, what kind of an incentive does this create? If you as a government are dependent for your very existence upon the support, the lavish support of foreign states, and you know that their ability to deliver that support is dependent upon the attitude of their constituents to the war, you have an incentive to inflame public opinion in those states to the maximum possible degree against your enemy. You will do everything you can to deceive these people, if necessary, into believing that your enemy is the new Hitler, and that if they win this war, they're coming after the West next. Any government in the position of the Ukrainian government would have that incentive, any government. And so I say that when we assess claims by the US government, the British government, the Ukrainian government, and by all means, the Russian government, test the claims against the objective independent evidence. We shouldn't take anybody's word at face value when it comes to war. And if the evidence is insufficient for us to form a reasonable judgment, then we should withhold our judgment and wait until we have that evidence available to us. So what is, we can say with complete confidence that the, U, the US government, I think based upon its sordid record of human rights abuses, its torture at CIA black sites, its annihilation of Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, its obliteration of Libya, Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, that ultimately it does not prioritize human rights, international law, or democracy, anywhere in the world, not even at home. The historical record is unambiguous in that regard. So what is it really up to? Well, let's listen to the statements of US leaders themselves. Let's look at studies issued by the RAND Corporation, geopolitical consultants in the United States. What are they telling us? They're telling us that the United States government is hell-bent on maintaining 
an unprecedented era of US global hegemony that began with the demise of the Soviet Union. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what this war is about. It has nothing to do with the well-being of the Ukrainian people, and it is in fact having an absolutely devastating impact upon the Ukrainian people. They are being used in order to perpetuate an era of US global hegemony that is in fact over, that is gone, it's not recoverable. And the US government simply refuses to accept that reality. Jacob Zuma, a few days ago, the former president of South Africa, he himself commented publicly that this war had been provoked by NATO expansion. And he went on to say, you need to find a solution to solve a problem. And this war is, in fact, linked to the existence of BRICS. But unfortunately, you can't crush BRICS. This is from the South African, the former president of South Africa. I think that says it quite nicely. That's what this war is really about. It's about the rise of the global south. It's about the rise of the east. It's about the global south's utter frustration with the arrogance and the hubris and the dominance of the west. That's what it's about. They've had enough and it's over. The party is over, folks. And the only question is, is the US government and Sally is going to come to that realization before we kill ourselves? So again, not only does the record of international uh, restraint that I've talked about in terms of sanctions and uh, weapons transfers show that my position's not an outlier, people of the highest repute are taking exactly or essentially the same position that I'm articulating to you today. Professor Noam Chomsky, Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, my good friend, Professor Radica Desai, Jacques Beau, a former Swiss intelligence officer, Professor Nikolai Petro, former U.S. State Department advisor to the Elder Bush, Professor Ivan Kachanovsky of the University of Ottawa, Tamara Lorenz, a doctoral student at the Balsili School, Professor Paul Robinson, a former officer in the British military who is now a University of Ottawa professor. And this is just a small sampling of people who are far more accomplished than I am who say essentially what I'm telling you here today. The problem is you won't hear from these people in the mainstream media. They're being blackballed. But the weight of global opinion is against the arming of Ukraine and the perpetuation of this war, both intellectually and in terms of popular opinion. What are the true causes of this war? We're told that the claim that NATO expansion has something to do with this war is propaganda. Really? Propaganda? A Putin talking point? Well, I suggest you look at the National Security Archive of the George Washington University which published dozens of declassified documents showing, as they say, as George Washington University says, a cascade of assurances being given to Mikhail Gorbachev at the time that the Soviet Union collapsed and they were debating with the West the potential reunification of Germany. In December 2017, this archive was published. And as you'll see, you can go to the website these assurances were given by James Baker, the elder Bush, uh, the West German foreign minister at the time, Chancellor Helmut Kohl, the CIA director Robert Gates, French President Francois Mitterrand, uh, the Prime Minister of Britain, Margaret Thatcher, and on and on. But we're told this is a Putin talking point, even though it's all there in black and white for us to see in declassified documents. William Perry, the US Defense Secretary under, under Bill Clinton, revealed recently that he almost resigned because of NATO expansion. 
As acknowledged in 1999 by the pro-NATO Brookings Institution, the dean of America's Russia experts, George Kennan, had called the expansion of NATO into Central Europe the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era. The current CIA director, William Burns, when he was a senior diplomat for the United States in Russia, interviewed people across the political spectrum in Russia, including liberals who were hotly opposed to Vladimir Putin, and wrote back to the State Department in a classified cable that across the political spectrum in Russia, there was universal alarm and opposition to NATO expansion. And the only reason we know about this is because WikiLeaks obtained this cable and leaked it to the public. Another supposed Putin talking point, that there was a coup in 2014, we'll tell, I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, there was in fact a coup. It's supported by the historical evidence. You don't have to believe Vladimir Putin. Look at the historical evidence. And we also know that there are neo-Nazis in Ukraine, as was widely reported uh, by the press, repeatedly, emphatically, right up until the time of Russia's invasion in February of last year. Now, in terms of the coup, Professor Ivan Kachinovsky, we were told at the time in 2014 that there was a popular uprising and that uh, the security forces under the control of the allegedly but democratic, uh, pro-Russian but democratically elected Viktor Yanukovych killed protesters, unarmed protesters. Professor Kachinovsky of the University of Ottawa did a peer-reviewed study recently peer-reviewed study and found that most of the people who were killed were in fact killed by far-right fanatics who were opposed to the government and infiltrated the protesters and shot at persons in the security services and pro-government protesters, creating a pretext for uh, the eviction of Viktor Yanukovych from power in 2014. But if that's not enough for you to believe that there was a coup, if the fact that John McCain was standing shoulder to shoulder with ultranationalists in Ukraine in the lead up to the, crew, uh, the coup expressing support for them and urging them to uh, facilitate the removal of Yanukovych, we have a recording. We have a recording of Victoria Newland, the, uh, a senior US State Department official at the time, speaking to the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine at the time, Jeffrey Pyatt, and in that recording, which anybody can hear, it's on the internet, it's not hard to find, its authenticity was admitted by the Obama administration, Miss Newland actually chooses the next Prime Minister of Ukraine, and that person was Yevgeny Yatsenyuk, and she said in this conversation, Yats is the guy, and imagine that this was not a leaked conversation uh, between Miss Newland and Mr. Pyatt, but that this is a conversation that was conducted in 2016 during the Trump-Clinton electoral contest, and the people speaking are the foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, and the Russian ambassador to the United States, whoever that may have been at the time. And let's imagine they have a conversation like this, and in the course of that conversation, Mr. Lavrov says, Trump is the guy. And then Trump becomes the president of the United States. Would anybody in Congress deny for one second that there had been a coup? Would anybody in Congress deny for one second that the Russian Federation had subverted American democracy? But when the Americans do it in Ukraine, it's a Putin talking point. 
So obvious was this coup that George Friedman, in 2014, in an interview with uh, the Russian magazine Commerzant, described it. This is the man who was the CEO of Stratfor, a geopolitical consulting firm that is tied to the hip with the United States government. He described it as the most overt coup in history. That's how obvious it was. But we're led to believe that it's just a Putin talking point. Now, you know, this question of neo-Nazism in Ukraine, there's been a lot of debate about that. This, too, we're told, is a Putin talking point. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as was widely reported by the press in 2018, in December of that year, the Ukrainian parliament declared a national holiday in honor of Stepan Bandera, a co-founder of an organization called OUN during the Second World War, a known and notorious Nazi collaborator who, whose organization was responsible for the mass murder of tens of thousands of Poles, Jews, and Russians. This is a documented historical fact. It wasn't some fringe group that honored this man. The Ukrainian parliament declared a national holiday in his honor in December 2018. And to this very day, Ukraine is honoring that man. On January 1st of this year, in the middle of this war, Celebrations were held in honor of this man throughout Ukraine. Lev Golinkin, a Ukrainian-American author and analyst, said in 2015, the Ukrainian parliament passed legislation making two World War II paramilitaries, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists and the Ukrainian Insurgent Army Heroes of Ukraine, and get this, made it a criminal offense to deny their heroism. So not only are they celebrating the legacy of these two organizations, they're potentially subjecting to imprisonment persons who have the audacity to say they're not heroes. They're not heroes, they're in fact monsters. And this is the government that we are arming to the teeth today. And by the way, I want to be very clear. I don't believe that a majority of the Ukrainian people ascribe to these views. But there is a serious problem with neo-Nazism in Ukraine. And the neo-Nazis have infiltrated the levers and power of the state, and they commit atrocities with impunity. And that is a serious risk and one that ought to trouble us deeply. Now, what were the true causes of the war uh, in, between Russia and Ukraine? I've talked about the rise of neo-Nazism and how it uh, infiltrated the Ukrainian state unchecked. I've talked about NATO expansion. There was also a civil war in the southeast of Ukraine. The support of Viktor Yanukovych, who was thrown, overthrown in 2014, became predominantly from those areas that are now largely controlled by Russia. And I went to U Russia, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, and I talked to people from these areas, and they said, you know, when this man was overthrown, we felt as though our vote had been stolen from us. And they had every reason to believe that, given what we know about American involvement in the removal of Yanukovych and his replacement by a government led by Yatsenyuk. And so what happened? A civil war broke out. And that civil war resulted in the deaths of over, I believe, 14,000 Ukrainians prior uh, to the Russian invasion in February of last year. So why should we oppose the transfer of weapons to Ukraine, first and foremost? because we are risking nuclear war. That's the number one reason. 
For that reason alone, we should do everything possible to resolve this peacefully. Secondly, and I don't purport to be a military expert, but you don't have to take my word for it. You can find military experts outside of the mainstream media who will offer this opinion to you. There is no realistic prospect of Ukraine winning this war. Why do I say that? This is largely a war of attrition in which the vast majority of people are being killed and wounded, those who are participating in combat by artillery. It is universally acknowledged that Russia has a massive advantage in artillery. Here, for example, uh, the Spanish mainstream newspaper El País talks about Russia having an advantage in the range of 10 to 1 in artillery. And remember, most of the soldiers are dying and being wounded in artillery battles. Russia's population, after the departure of millions of Ukrainian men uh, since the beginning of the invasion, is now four to six times larger than that of Ukraine. Just think about that math for a second. You have an, you have an artillery advantage as high as 10 to 1, and you have a population advantage as high as 6 to 1. Guess who's going to run out of soldiers first when artillery is the main means by which they're being killed and wounded? The math is absolutely uh, devastating for Ukraine. On that basis alone, there's no reasonable basis to think that Ukraine can defeat Russia. But on top of that, Russia has far more combat aircraft, bombers, cruise missiles, and air defense systems. Russia has hypersonic missiles. Not only does Ukraine not have such missiles, no NATO country has hypersonic missiles. Russia has vastly greater oil reserves than Ukraine, and of course, oil is absolutely critical. Uh, to the sustainment of large-scale land warfare, and Russia has a far larger industrial base than Ukraine. That was true even before the war began. What industrial base Ukraine had before the war has been largely destroyed. And how do you sustain the production of the weaponry necessary to win a war like this when your industrial base has been eviscerated? So even if, even if you think that Russia is completely in the wrong and has no legitimate grievances, why would you support the perpetuation of a war that is going to end in the destruction of the country whom you purport to want to protect? It makes no sense. Absolutely none. It's inhumane. What else should we consider in terms of determining whether we should support the army of Ukraine? Well, as I've indicated, contrary to what we're told, which is that all of this weaponry is supposed to strengthen Ukraine's negotiating position, in fact, it's getting weaker. How do we know this? Recently, the Ukrainian forces lost control of Bakhmut in the Donbass, which was the most bloody and painful battle of the war to date. And Zelensky himself said before that battle was concluded that if Russia took Bakhmut, it would have an open path to seizing control of the rest of the Donbass, including Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, the last two large communities in the Donbass, and potentially all the way up to the Dnieper River. Their negotiating position, ladies and gentlemen, is getting weaker, not stronger. Don't believe this hype. Why else should we oppose weapons transfers to Ukraine? Well, as I hope I've, I've impressed upon you, Russia does have some legitimate grievances. NATO expansion is a legitimate grievance. The overthrow of Yanukovych is a legitimate grievance. And when you're dealing with an enemy who has at least some legitimate grievances, it seems to me that it behooves you to sit down and talk to that enemy and try to find a mutual accommodation. We all know, we can see with our own eyes, that this is having a devastating impact on the environment. 
The destruction of Nord Stream, which was very likely perpetrated by the U.S. government, caused the single largest methane emission in recorded history at a time when we have a climate crisis that's spinning out of control. Recently, a dam was destroyed in the Dnieper River, which caused absolutely devastating damage. The emissions being brought about by this war are enormous. The last thing we need right now are more emissions. So the only way to stop the environmental destruction is to stop the fighting. Sending more and more weaponry to Ukraine is having the opposite effect. It is perpetuating the fighting and increasing the intensity and lethality of the fighting. Finally, uh, the head of Interpol last year warned that the weaponry with which we are flooding Ukraine, a significant portion of it is going to end up in the hands of criminal organizations and potentially also terrorists, even far-right terrorists in Western countries. There is a plethora of reasons, ladies and gentlemen, to oppose, as most of the world does, the delivery of further weaponry to Ukraine. I'm Michael Welch, and you're listening to the Global Research News Hour in the summer, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. You've just been listening to the speech delivered on June 22nd by Dmitry Laskaris in Winnipeg on the topic of making peace with Russia one handshake at a time. Here is more of what he had to say, this time about his journey through Russia and what he heard from the Russians themselves. I went to what is was told, uh, what was presented to me as the largest think tank in Russia. It's called IMIMO. Uh, I was supposed to meet with a director, and uh, to my great surprise, uh, when I showed up, I was escorted into a conference room with uh, approximately 25 experts, uh, people who were experts in sanctions, in the petroleum industry, uh, in military matters, in informational warfare. I found them all to be very uh, balanced in their presentations to me. Uh, very open to critical questioning. Unfortunately, I can't share with you what they said because I was told when I walked in that uh, Chatham House rules prevailed. Uh, So I'm going to respect uh, the confidentiality. I'll tell you that it was, for me, uh, quite an education. I also had a meeting at the Russian Foreign Ministry uh, with a gentleman who was a diplomat in uh, the Russian embassy uh, in Ottawa a few years ago and who was expelled because he exposed the fact that the grandfather of our deputy prime minister was a Nazi collaborator. You don't have to take my word for this. You can find reports about this in the National Post, in the Toronto Star, uh, and I believe one other major Canadian newspaper, all reported at the time that this gentleman, his name is, I believe, Kido uh, Mameyev, was expelled by the Canadian government for that reason. And in that discussion, I asked him, what are the essential demands of the Russian government uh, for a peace deal, and I'm going to come back to, to that in a moment and tell you what he had to say to me. Uh, I also visited a homeless shelter, which was run by a charity. Uh, I visited the Russian International Affairs Council, which I believe was co-founded by Sergei Lavrov, and I met with the director there, talked about the movement uh, towards multipolarity, the rise of China and Russia, and the whole uh, problem with the continuation of U.S. hegemony. And finally, I did an interview on RT on a program called Worlds Apart, and that's where the name of this presentation comes from. Citizen Diplomacy, One Handshake at a Time. I can't claim to have come up with that myself. It was, it was RT that came up with that uh, when I agreed to be interviewed by them. So then after Moscow, I took a train to uh, Crimea, as I mentioned. Uh, I went to Yalta, 
It's the site of a famous uh, conference at the end of the Second World War uh, featuring Stalin, Roosevelt, and uh, Churchill. I went to Balaklava, which was a uh, Soviet-era nuclear submarine base, now decommissioned. I went to Sebastopol, the headquarters of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Uh, while I was there, there was an attack upon Sebastopol uh, by drones, uh, and that attack was defeated by uh, the Russian air defense systems. I went up to uh, the Kherson border, and I interviewed Russian volunteers, not, not employees of the state, people who came from all over Russia, as far away as Siberia, uh, and who were working in a tent in the war zone where they were uh, processing and assisting refugees who wanted to leave the war zone. And uh, interestingly, when I arrived there, uh, there was a family of three. People didn't spend a lot of time there. It was a transition, a transitional facility. Uh, and there was a man and a woman, uh, Ukrainians, uh, and their 10-year-old daughter. They declined to be interviewed uh, on the record. They didn't give me their names. But they explained to me that they wanted to go to Poland. And I thought that was odd. Why would you want to come through Crimea if your intention is to go to Poland? And uh, the gentleman explained to me that he didn't want to try to enter Poland uh, through Ukrainian-controlled territory because he was certain that he was going to be seized and sent into the Ukrainian military. And he wanted nothing to do with the war. And then I asked the volunteer workers there, the Russians, you know, what do you do with people like this? And they said, well, we send them wherever they want to go. If they want to go to the West, that's where we send them. And we facilitate their uh, travel to Western countries. Uh, but they assured me, and I can't tell you whether this is accurate or not, that the vast majority of people who came through that transition point either wanted to remain in Crimea or went into uh, mainland Russia. And then finally, I took a train back uh, to Crimea, uh, uh, and on that particular part of my journey, I found myself in a train full of Russian soldiers. Uh, for, in the interest of time, I'm not going to get into what I, uh, I, I learned. It was quite interesting on that trip. I did speak to a number of soldiers, including one who identi identified himself as a, a sniper from Wagner. Uh, and I've written an article about this, which you can find on my website. And if you're interested, uh, I explain in detail what, uh, what they had to say to me. So overall, my impressions, I spoke with dozens of academic students, economic experts, humanitarian volunteers, journalists, and ordinary citizens. I can tell you that uh, at least, I'm, I'm just reporting to you at, on face value what they said to me. Every single one of them was supportive of the Russian government. Uh, the only criticism that I heard, and I didn't hear many, was to the effect that the Russian government should have intervened sooner, before the Ukrainian military was built up and had become a formidable enemy. And secondly, that the Russian government had not been aggressive enough in prosecuting the war to a successful conclusion. Which is quite striking given what we hear about the Russian government's approach to this war in the Western media. I also heard from those older persons that I spoke to, people who had lived through the 90s and remembered what it was like, uh, that the, air, the hardships of that era were extraordinary, the humiliation was painful, and I encountered near universal contempt for the government, uh, the government of Boris Yeltsin. These statistics I'm going to show you are from uh, the World Bank, not from Russia. Um, first of all, what happened to poverty during the time that uh, Putin has been the president? When Putin became the president, the poverty rate in Russia was at around 29%, according to the World Bank. It fell to about 12% at the end of uh, 2021. Life expectancy. 
if you can see here, it's, it's hard to make out, but there's, you'll see a dip. That dip is during the 90s, during the, Bolt, the Yeltsin era, where it went down to about 63 years. That was the average, average lifespan of a Russian. It rose up to about 73, according to the World Bank, just before the pandemic, and then it took a significant dip during the pandemic, I think for obvious reasons. But still, even after that dip, it was far above the low point of life expectancy during the Yeltsin era. This is a chart showing unemployment. That huge peak was during the Yeltsin era. Now, unemployment in Russia is near uh, a record low. I believe it's in the range of uh, 3 to 4%, even with the devastating sanctions that have been imposed upon the Russian Federation. And, and, and before I conclude on these uh, statistical issues, uh, I don't have a chart to show you, uh, but uh, you can find out for yourself that the fiscal situation of Russia, at least by the standards the West employs to measure fiscal health, is extraordinarily uh, better than it was during the Yeltsin era. Russia has uh, the lowest, I believe, the lowest GDP ratio of any major economy, and it has one of the lowest GDP ratios in the world. Again, despite, I, I, personally, I marvel at the fact that the socioeconomic statistics show, show much, so much improvement during this era, while at the same time, the fiscal situation of Russia uh, improved dramatically. Russia was a basket case fiscally in the 1990s. Look what Time Magazine was bragging about in 1996 when Russia, the Russian Federation held an election. Yanks to the rescue. The secret story of how American advisors helped Yeltsin win. They were bragging about it, ladies and gentlemen. Imagine, imagine if during the 2016 election, Pravda put out a front page article and said, Russians to the rescue, the secret story of how Russian advisors helped Trump win. How would Americans feel about that? How would we in the West feel about that? They openly bragged about it. And Russians now look back on that era, and they say this was an era of deep pain and suffering for the Russian people, particularly workers, the poor, the vulnerable. And you were bragging about putting this man back in power for another four years? Uh, those who lived through that period have not forgotten, and that should not surprise us. Finally, there were few overt signs of economic crisis while I was there. And in fact, if you look at the IMF data, uh, although it predicts weak growth for the Russian Federation this year and next, it nonetheless predicts better economic performance, again, using the measure that is most cited in the West, GDP, uh, better economic performance than Germany and Britain, despite the fact that we have imposed devastating sanctions on the Russian Federation. So again, there might just be some objective reasons why the Russian people support their government. Is there reason to criticize their government? Absolutely. There's plenty to criticize. But we're told that there's nothing good about that government. It's all bad news. We're given this Manichaean picture of a government that is pure evil, doesn't care at all about its people. Uh, I read an article recently that Vladimir Putin, according to some, I think it was the Times of London, went mad in his bunker during the pandemic and decided to invade Ukraine just because he was a lunatic and not because there was any legitimate reason that for his, for his uh, country to feel threatened by NATO expansion. Uh, you know, the, the picture that I'm suggesting to you is much more complicated. Uh, that government is neither saintly nor is it pure evil. It's a complicated picture and we should exercise 
our capacity for critical thinking and assessing why there might be this level of support in Russia. Only by appreciating what the relationship between the Russian people and their government, and by the way, this is not a model of government that I want. I'm a socialist, and that ain't no socialist government. Okay? That is nowhere close to my ideal of a government. But if we want to have peace with the Russian Federation and avoid uh, devastating conventional conflict and potentially nuclear war, it behooves us to understand how the Russian people feel about that government. So uh, a few other things I learned about my trip to Russia. Surprisingly, I saw a few overt signs of nationalism. Uh, you know, I, I, I have a, a little house on a mountain in the south of Greece, uh, an old 50-year-old house. And when I drive up the mountain, it takes me three kilometers to get up there. I count the number of Zeds that have been carved into the side of the mountain. And at any given time, they range from you know, four to seven Zeds. And this, of course, is the symbol of the Russian military in the war zone. I saw one Z in Moscow, one single Z, and it wasn't on a government building. I saw very few uniformed police. I'm sure there are many uh, police in Moscow uh, in civilian wear. Uh, I have no doubt that that's the case, but compared to what I see in major North American cities, uh, there was not uh, a, a notable presence of militarized police or uniformed police, nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, I saw very little homelessness in central Moscow compared to what I see in any major Western city, any major Western city. Uh, I even counted them. Uh, and uh, I think I saw a total of maybe five homeless persons in 10 days in Moscow. Uh, I was told, from my perspective, there should be no homelessness in any country, particularly a country as wealthy as Russia. Uh, but I certainly didn't get the sense, even after the visiting that homeless shelter, that there was something out of the ordinary by the standards of capitalist societies in the West. And finally, I met a gentleman, I'm just giving you a sampling of what I heard, uh, a gentleman by the name of Gennady in Yalta. He's 60 years old, he has a disabled daughter uh, and an elderly wife. And last year, he volunteered uh, to fight on the side of the rebels in the Donbass at the age of 60. And he left after discussing this with his wife, he decided to risk his life and he went to the Donbass and he served in a territorial defense unit came back and he was very uh, gracious in his conversation with me and I, of course, was very curious why he made that decision and then asked him, do you have a message to people of the West? And he said, East or West, people are the same. Sometimes we want to live a better life in comparison with our neighbors. Envy is not a good trait. We should be glad for each other. If you live a better life in the USA or Europe, we are happy for you. I am a patriot of my country, but I remember back in the Soviet days, we envied people in the West as they lived a better life. Now Russia is rising and others envy that we live a better life now. We do not want a neighbor next door who will have a stone in his pocket to throw at us. And uh, what was interesting is that our, our discussion concluded at that point. I, I published an interview. You can see him speaking in a video and saying this. Uh, and off, off camera, he, he immediately apologized for saying these words. And, uh, and he said to me, I'm sorry if I was undiplomatic. Uh, that was the tone with which I uh, was dealt uh, with in my conversations with Russians. There was no hostility whatsoever. Uh, most of the people I spoke to had no idea who I was. They had no idea what my perspective on this war was. But I was always treated cordially, and the fact that I was Canadian did not elicit uh, evident hostility from anybody uh, to whom I spoke while I was there. So now I want to talk to you about what a negotiated peace must like, look, look like. This is the last part of my presentation to you. 
you want to resolve a dispute, who are the true counterparties to the dispute? Now, I told you earlier about those comments from Joseph Perel and Boris Pistorius about the existential dependence upon, of the, U, the Ukrainian government upon the West. I think it's fair to say, uh, in, not only in light of that, but all the other uh, things we know that the West is doing to involve itself in this war, that the West itself is a counterparty to this dispute. The idea that this is just a dispute between Ukraine and Russia is a fantasy. Of course, the Ukrainian people are the ones most affected by this dispute, absolutely. But there's not going to be a resolution until the Americans and their uh, so-called allies come to the table alongside uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, whoever represents the Ukrainian people, and has a negotiation about all of the issues that precipitated this heinous and devastating war. Uh, secondly, uh, it's important to understand, and I think most people in this room, if not all of you, will, will get this right away, you know, uh, you don't go into a negotiation uh, telling the other side what your bottom line is. People posture. They bid high at the outset of a negotiation because they know that they're going to be called upon during the course of the negotiation to compromise down. So you don't tell them what your bottom line is. You start with an ambitious demand or set of demands, and then you compromise from there. And at some point, you'll get to your breaking point and either the other side will be willing to do a deal above your breaking point or not, in which case the negotiation breaks down. So what does this mean practically? The Russian government, I'm going to go through their demands. We should not assume that the demands that the Russian government has articulated up until now are their bottom line. Now, that would be very surprising. And the only way we're going to find out where their bottom line is, is to actually negotiate. Um, and finally, uh, you know, I, I tell a story when I, I do these presentations about the early days of my legal career when I started going up against large companies on Bay Street. Uh, I quickly uh, earned a nickname, and the nickname that I got was Pitbull. Why did they call me Pitbull? Because every time I got into a negotiation with one of my adversaries on Bay Street, I would berate them. I would tell them, your client is a monster, it's a fraudster, they're a scam artist, they've devastated my clients, the class members have been completely exploited and abused. You know, you're lucky that I'm even talking to you. I learned very quickly that uh, it's impossible to negotiate a resolution when you talk to people that way. Even if it's true. Even if every single negative sentiment you're expressing is true. You can't negotiate in that way. And something that's really struck me in hearing, when I, I, I actually pay attention to what the Russian government says because I try to understand how it thinks, not because I believe that its word is, is gold. Uh, and it strikes me how more diplomatic Mr. Putin and Mr. Lavrov are uh, when they talk about Western leaders. Uh, on the other hand, and here we have a perfect example uh, in the last few days, you know, they, Biden doesn't involve Russia directly. But Biden sends Blinken off to Beijing to meet with uh, the leader of the country and the foreign minister of the country. And apparently Blinken was you know, appropriately deferential. And the next day, Biden says Xi Jinping is a dictator. <laughs> is this conducive to detente, ladies and gentlemen? I mean, even if it's true, that is not a recipe for detente. If you want to take that approach, go ahead. But you're not going to resolve disputes using that kind of language. That's just the reality of human nature. So uh, as I perceive the statements of the Russian government, they're not imposing any preconditions. 
They've made a set of demands and they're willing to sit down and talk about them. And the question is, what will happen if we actually have that discussion? So what are the demands? Number one, the cessation of hostilities by Ukrainian armed formations and supply of weapons by Western countries, as well as the withdrawal of foreign mercenaries. Personally, I don't know why we'd object to that as long as the Russians also obviously lay down their weapons and stop introducing more weaponry into the war zone. Uh, that would have to be reciprocal. Number two, Ukraine's neutral and non-aligned status, its refusal to join NATO and the EU. Well, if new Ukraine were to give this commitment, it would, the West and its Ukrainian ally or proxy, depending on your point of view, would simply be fulfilling the promise that was made back uh, in the 1990s to the Soviet Union, that NATO would not expand eastward. Now, people will say, well, that's terrible for Ukraine. Why is that terrible for Ukraine? Finland, Austria, and Switzerland all remained out of NATO for decades. They were never attacked or threatened by Russia, and they became prosperous states that had robust uh, trade and uh, cultural relations with uh, the European Union states. There's really no reason why this can't be the case for Ukraine. And we, as people who are concerned about the potential for nuclear war, we should invite the existence of a buffer state between NATO forces and Russian forces. That would be to the mutual benefit of us all. And frankly, if I were a Ukrainian, I wouldn't want to be told how to handle my military matters by some general in Washington, because that's exactly what's going to happen if Ukraine becomes a member of NATO. Every single non-US member of NATO, by becoming a member of NATO, effectively sacrifices its sovereignty in military matters, and even in, to some degree, socioeconomic matters. For example, we're being constantly pressured as a member of NATO to spend 2% of our GDP, constantly being harangued. What does that do to our ability to fund social programs in this country? Obviously, it compromises that our ability to do that. So actually being a member of NATO, there's a significant price to be paid in terms of uh, fiscal capacity and in terms of sovereignty. Uh, now people say, I hear this a lot, oh, but Ukraine has a right to join NATO. No, ladies and gentlemen, no country has a right to join NATO. NATO is a voluntary military alliance. Under Article 10, and the whole world knows this, any single member state of NATO can veto the entry of a new country into NATO. It's a contract and the members uh, of the organization who have entered into that contract are free to say no to any other country. Greece doesn't have a right to join NATO, China, Russia. In fact, Russia, I understand, actually indicated a desire early in Putin's tenure to join NATO, and they told him, F off. Uh, you know, there's no right to join NATO. And I would suggest to you that it's not even remotely in the interest of Ukraine that it be a member of NATO. Uh, now, Russia also objects to Ukraine's admission into the EU. Uh, I think the reason for that primarily is that uh, if you enter the EU, you have to submit yourself to the military and foreign policy structures of the EU. And I think the Russians view this EU admission as a backdoor way for Ukraine to enter NATO. Uh, again, I would say, as somebody who's uh, spent a lot of time in Greece over the last 15 years, covering the austerity program that the technocrats in Brussels inflicted upon the Greek people, causing a 27% contraction in their economy, I would say to the Ukrainian people, be careful what you wish for. Do you really want to become a member of the EU? How much sovereignty will you have left, particularly if you enter the EU in such a weakened condition? Who's really going to rule your country? Will it be the people you elect in Kiev, 
or the technocats in Brussels. I think it's much more likely to be the latter. Um, a third demand, confirmation of Ukraine's nuclear-free st status. I think that's a no-brainer. I don't think any of us should want any country, not just Ukraine, any country that doesn't have weapons, nu nuclear weapons to get them. And in fact, we should be maximizing our pressure on those who have them to get rid of them. Number four, recognition by Kiev and the international community of its new territorial realities. I think this is the big one. This is the one that would be the greatest sticking point. This means what the Russians are signaling to us is that Ukraine must cede some territory to Russia. Now, one thing I want to comment about here is that this phrase that you see, new territorial realities, is one that the Russian Federation government uses all the time. I've seen it repeatedly, and I think that's a conscious choice on their part. Uh, legally, what Russian, Russia has done during the course of this, uh, this conflict is they have annexed four oblasts in the southeastern part of Ukraine, Zaporozhye, Kherson, uh, Donetsk, and Luhansk. But they don't control all of those oblasts. In fact, I don't think they have 100% control of any of them. And I believe, as a lawyer who listens to you know, people who are posturing, uh, listens to this language, that what the Russians are signaling to us is that they may be willing to give up parts of these four territories that they have, these four oblasts that they have annexed. I think it's very clear from their statements they're not willing to give up an inch of Crimea. Uh, now, we can get into that, but that's a whole other discussion. But I do believe that there is a signal coming to us because of this language that they're quite consciously using over and over again, new territorial realities, this ambiguous term, uh, that they may be willing to give up a lot of that territory uh, that they have formally annexed. And I suspect that if NATO went to the Russians and said, look, and this is a demand that Russia made before the invasion, we will withdraw our missile forces to the pre-Warsaw Pact borders uh, and all of our military forces. So Poland will remain part of NATO, the Baltics and so forth, but we're gonna take American military forces, British military forces and so forth, and we're gonna push them all the way back to Germany we're going to take out those nuclear-capable launchers in Romania and Poland. We're going to put them all the way back to Germany. I suspect if that was offered to the Russian Federation, uh, they'd be prepared to give back quite a bit. Again, the only way we can find out is to try and have a discussion and see where that leads. Uh, demand number five, uh, the denationalization of Ukraine. Sometimes they, that's translated as the denazification of Ukraine. Again, this is... It's very unclear what is meant by this. Uh, if I were advising the Russian Federation or the Ukrainian government, what I would say is, in order to satisfy this demand, uh, we should disarm and dismantle the neo-Nazi battalions. Uh, secondly, we should abolish the national holiday for Stepan Bandera and his organizations. And thirdly, we should launch an educational campaign uh, in Ukraine about the realities of the legacy of Bandera and, and uh, the ultra-nationalists who collaborated with the Nazis. Now, I don't know whether the Russians would accept that, I don't know whether the Ukrainians would accept that, but it's possible that they both would, and the question I ask to you is why would anybody in the West take issue with any of those things? Do we really think it's a good thing that there's a national holiday for Stepan Bandera? Do we really think there's a good thing, it's a good thing that there are neo-Nazis who are armed and committing atrocities with impunity in Ukraine? 
Uh, why wouldn't we support that? Demand number six, protection of the rights of Russian-speaking citizens, the Russian language, and national minorities. Well, we do that in Canada. Why shouldn't Ukraine do it? And of course, Russia has to do it as well. Russia has to agree to protect the rights of minorities, language and other minority rights of non-Russians living under their control. Demand number seven, free cross-border movement with Russia, uh, lifting of anti-Russian sanctions. Uh, I think that uh, fostering trade between Russia and Ukraine would be a good thing for both peoples. Uh, they have things that they can offer to each other. Uh, in terms of the sanctions, uh, I indicated earlier that the IMF is projecting a contraction in Germany while it's projecting growth for Russia, and I think it's quite clear that a, at least a major part of the reason for that is that the Germans have lost access to cheap Russian gas and are now forced to import much more expensive and dirtier LNG uh, from the United States. So if you lift those economic sanctions, it actually would be good for Europe. It might not be so good for the American petroleum industry, but it would certainly be good for Europe. And uh, Russia last year became the largest exporter of wheat. It is a, an agricultural superpower. And the global south needs access to its agricultural products. So why wouldn't we support the lifting of sanctions if all of these other issues can be resolved uh, to the mutual satisfaction of the belligerents? And finally, uh, the eighth demand of the Russian Federation, the West must fund reconstruction of the civilian infrastructure destroyed by Ukrainian forces after 2014. Personally, I think this is a ludicrous demand. Uh, I think this is probably posturing. I think that uh, the Russian Federation should, as part of any peace deal, commit massive amounts of money to the reconstruction of Ukraine. Hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, they don't have to call it reparations. If that's offensive to the Russian Federation, call it a reconstruction fund. But Russia has the capacity to do that, and it should unquestionably do that. And so should the West. Uh, so those are my suggestions as to what a peace deal might look like. And I want to conclude by saying, again, I cannot stress it enough, persons of conscience would make every effort to see if a deal can be struck. It is unconscionable that we won't even try. Thank you. You just heard lawyer, journalist, activist Dmitry Laskara speaking in Winnipeg on the topic of making peace with Russia one handshake at a time on the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on the traditional territory of the Ishinabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. If you have any concerns about what you just heard, send me an email at globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Music on this show was Shifting Sands from Purple Planet Music, obtained from the site purple-planet.com. My name is Michael Welch. Join us again next week for more shows. Music